here we go. <laughs> Welcome to Freepore. My guest today is Sean Oakley. Sean is somebody that I know through Dog and Bone. We became pretty good friends, I would say. <laughs> Some He's also actually the gentleman that I referenced in the third episode of this podcast with Kelly Lavendette Rosé, the person who cut me out of his life. <laughs> this is him. <laughs> Dramatics aside, I'm very glad to say that we have reconnected. He reached out to me. We put our shit to the side and we are friends once again. I think we were always friends, really. But the point is, he's here today. And he's somebody that I've always loved talking to. So I'm so glad that we reconnected because when I started this podcast, honestly, you were the first person that I wanted to interview. You were somebody that I, I could imagine myself interviewing multiple times because you have said about me that I am somebody who knows a little about a lot, but you are somebody who knows a lot about a lot. It's a pretty big introduction to Phil, by the way. Is it? Oh God, I'm sorry. Yeah. No pressure. No, no. <laughs> You're fine. I feel not. Don't worry. I was <laughs> waiting for these questions. I cannot wait. Oh, really? Can't wait. <laughs> no, because I listen to the podcast, and so I am fascinated by how we're going to lead into this. Let me see if I can remember from my bathroom rehearsal this morning. I've drank quite a bit since I've had a shitty day. You do rehearsals in the bathroom? Why the bathroom? I do. I talk out loud to myself. Mm. Do you ever do that? Not when I'm aware. I catch myself sometimes, but yeah. It's actually great. You really work shit out. I don't want to say I recommend it because you could sound like a crazy person, but I don't hate it. It's nice. You like have full on conversations with yourself. But I will say this about you. Something that sort of took me by surprise when I first met you and like actually had a conversation with you. I should I should precursor this with when I met Sean, I was working at Dog and Bone and he was there with a couple of friends. And then the next day I was working at Churchill. And then him and actually one of those same friends happened to walk in the bar. Very funny because I hadn't told them that I worked at Churchill. So we all kind of looked at each other like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I actually asked them, like, did I tell you I work here? Like, what is happening? I mentioned this to say, because this was in what, 2018, right? Uh, no, 2019. It was the last season of Game of Thrones. Was it? I thought it was before that. Yeah, because right. I was having such an interesting time talking to you that I actually missed the episode of Game of Thrones that night. So which at the time I was working for HBO, so I, it was kind of taboo for me to do that as well. Not that you probably miss that much, but <laughs> Sean and I wound up actually talking that night for several hours. He was the first conservative I had interacted with up until that point that I actually was able to converse with. Like there was an actual interaction, exchange of ideas, and he really opened up my mind, my views to a world that existed outside of my bubble, which I would say now is a pretty invaluable thing. The question I want to ask, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm very drunk. Given where you worked at the time at HBO and given what you do now, I was sort of surprised that you had the views that you held. Not that there's a stereotype really for any sort of media network, but I was just surprised that you could do what you do and have the views that you have. And don't, don't take this the wrong way, okay? But, no, that's a fair, I mean, good. Yeah, but, but there was a but, what was coming after that? But when most people think of conservative ideology, especially now, it's very close-minded. We have the things that we stand for. We're not really looking to have a discussion or a debate. We want what we want and that's it. So for you to work at any kind of network, I think would strike, aside from Fox or OAN, would strike many people by surprise because I think most people would associate, especially networks that produce shows that are fairly, you know, 
liberally minded or open minded would find it surprising that somebody who has conservative ideas and ideals and values could work there and, you know, not only fit in, but really excel. Do you find that the environment that you work in, does that really come into play much or is it just kind of separate? I mean, if I wore a MAGA hat in there, it might come into play, but I don't <laughs> do that. And I'm not, I, yeah. I, I think the difference with me is that I would call myself a conservative just because it's ease of definition, but I'm really a classical liberal is really what I am. Like, like not a conservative. classical liberal for me. So classical liberal is a concept that leans towards individual rights, small government, those type of aspects, as opposed to when you say conservatism, that's often linked to like more of your cultural issues, I guess. And a classical liberal is more concerned about centralized power and making sure that we don't fall back into centralized power. You know, you're always going to have people who abuse power. What's the best way to defend against that? And the best way to defend against that, in my mind, is to not centralize it. Anytime you centralize power, whatever the intentions might be, it's opening up a door for someone to take control of that centralized power and usurp. So that tends to be where my focus is, not on the cultural issues. Like to me, again, as a classical liberal, like I firmly believe this, Mm -hmm. you are free to do whatever you want up until the point at which you infringe upon someone else's rights. I firmly believe that. And I don't think what people would consider conservatives would. Also, I would say is I don't work at the editorial board, so I'm not on the editorial side at all at any of these networks. I work in the digital advertising and I'm passionate about that. It's fascinating. And also, I don't oppose views. Like I like hearing other people's views. I like the discourse of ideas. I think what's been so frustrating this year is I've seen a lot of that get shut down. Yeah, I remember I have a journalism degree too. And yeah. journalism has been in my blood since high high school. What about journalism? It's an imperative pillar to stopping authoritarianism or any type of centralized power, right? Like you need a free press to be able to keep government in check. But ultimately, uh, I just love the notion that the pen and paper and just being able to dig into a story and, and uncover things that are happening and be able to hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. I also like people's stories. Like there was a big part of me that liked feature writing and, and just learning people's stories. Like I'd listen to you on a previous podcast. And you and I are very similar. I've always believed that every single person background doesn't matter like everyone has different experiences and if you just listen to them you can learn something from everybody that's like the beautiful part of journalism i think more hard-nosed part of journalism is the investigative side that really does hold people accountable why did journalism not become the career It's really hard to pay off college loan, like on a journalistic <laughs> journalist salary coming out of college. So, and shockingly, no matter how many uh, letters I sent to the New York Times, they weren't interested in dropping me in the middle of the Middle East and reporting on that at the age of 23. So I went a different route. When it comes to Congress or even any public service, really, a lot of times people enter the office who already have money because it doesn't necessarily pay that well. Do you think the same trend happens with journalism, that people tend to become journalists who already have, you know, mommy and daddy's money? Like, has journalism kind of fallen off? Because you can't have that kind of quality if not everybody who's genuinely doing it because their heart is in it can maybe afford the salary that it pays. Uh, Maybe. I mean, I've always viewed it simply as that other people had more courage than I did and just stuck Mm -hmm. it out. Just in hindsight, at that age, I wasn't, so I went a different route. But it could be. I, I don't really know the background of a lot of the journalists, if, they're, if they come from wealthy families or not. I mean, I don't want to be an 8 o'clock slot on one of the networks. I wanted to be embedded overseas. I wanted to be able to on the ground, specifically the Middle East. I've, I've always been fascinated by the Middle East. The whole region, the whole history, all that. I really, really wanted to be part of that. But it's interesting that you asked that question because I never thought about it. Let's do a hypothetical. Like you are a journalist, right? At the time that you wanted mm-hmm. to be and you are put overseas, what would be your approach? How would you approach that sort of job? I just saw people on both sides and I saw, mm-hmm. it's kind of ironic if you look at America today, the way I was looking at the conflict was you had two sets of extremists on both sides 
who are really keeping the other 80% of people who just want a piece hostage. It's a complex conversation. Thomas Friedman was one of my favorite authors on that subject. And one of the things about Thomas Friedman was both the left and the right both hated him for what he wrote. That to me was a good indicator that what he was saying was the truth. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't believe in either side when it came to the Middle East. I, I believe that Arafat was very tied to cause. Like he never wanted peace because he would have lost power if they had peace. And I think Hamas is pretty clear that in the charter, they don't recognize the right of Israel to exist. So what do you do with that? But on the flip side, I mean, you can't deny that Palestine is one of the most impoverished areas in the whole world. And what those families go through is insane. It's a whole different level of poverty than we can even grasp in America. So it's, it's hard on both sides, right? That's the angle I would have found. And then a lot of the history is how we got to where it works. At. I think a lot of times in history, we tend to use scapegoats instead of really trying to address the bigger issues underneath. And therefore we just kind of go around in circles. It's funny. I liken it to someone I, I met down here I was talking to and uh, they had some medical issues and they kept going to the doctors and the doctors were giving them prescriptions that would treat the symptoms. But the underlying issues never were, were addressed. So they turned to kind of Eastern medicine, which is a more whole body approach. And they feel a lot better. And it's very similar to like what I see today. We scapegoat things. We look for easy scapegoats instead of really looking at the undercover. Like what's the real issues? Do you think you're guilty of that? Sure. I think we all are. What it is that you said in a previous I'm proving to you that I did listen to your podcast, by the way. I believe you said in a previous <laughs> podcast, it's feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's a uncomfortable you need to feel to grow. I don't think anyone likes to feel like they or, or recognize that they were wrong. But if we're always right, we're not really growing, are we? If someone comes with age too. You and I have talked a lot of politics. And I think I've been kind of a political nut since I was 16. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 25 years of watching patterns over politics. And there's something that you see in the patterns. That's a little bit different than when you look at one topic for today, right? You see the same patterns going through. Look at like what's going on right now with the gun rights or not gun rights, but this gun issue with the shooting uh-huh. in Colorado and the one in Atlanta before that. It's the same knee-jerk reaction by both sides post. It's the same one every single time. And yet, and I'm walking right into it because I know you talked about this in an earlier podcast too. But I always think, I take a step back and I think to myself, why do we have so many people that want to go in and kill people? Weapon aside, like we can argue that all we want, but isn't the deeper issue like, what is going on in society mm-hmm. that people want to go in and kill other people? What do you think is going on in society? I mean, dude, I would need a psychologist degree to even start to grasp that. But I think that um, it's also something you touched on earlier. Pod. It's a, the funny thing about you and I is we do think very similar. I think there's a hollowness in our society. It's interesting. It ties back to the Middle East. So yeah. one of the things I always, I always hated in that argument was that everyone was blaming Saudi Arabia after 9-11 because they would say like, you know, seven or nine of the hijackers, how many were from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. But Wahhabism has nothing to do with what was going on. Osama bin Laden was mainly converted by the Muslim Brotherhood, the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. It came out of Egypt. And the spiritual leader who was executed for the assassination, I believe Sadat, but he wrote a book called Milestones, which was often quoted a book by Osama bin Laden. And I had read it. And it's interesting because the analogy just so bear with me while I make this analogy, but one of the main points he makes in that book, and this book was written in the 70s when he was in an Egyptian jail cell awaiting trial and execution, was that the reason, and this is during the, so, uh, the Cold War, the reason the Soviet Union and the United States would fail is because capitalism has no soul and communism has no soul. And the reason Islam would prevail is because Islam has a soul. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is that if you look at capitalism, which is true, I mean, Mm-hmm. I'm a big proponent of capitalism, but I will say one of the downsides of capitalism is there's no, there's no real meaning in it, right? Like there's no soul in it. And yeah. communism is the same. There's no soul in it. But Islam, if you look at Islam, and for those who actually know what Islam is, it's not just a religion. Islam is also an economic system. It's a political system too. It's everything. And it, it has a soul. And there's a, there's a meaning. There's a higher meaning. I'm not saying that religion needs to be that higher meaning. That's not what I'm saying. It could be as simple as I like to take photography. That's what gives you meaning in life. But right. something more meaningful than just 
I'm waking up doing nine to five every day and running a rat race, which is a lot of the, the narrative you hear of the complaints today. College debt, I can never buy a house. But what is it? We're all trying to go after that same kind of soulless journey. God, we're about to go all over the place. This also ties in a lot of the meditation that I got into in 2019. Well, let me just because you learn a little really quick. Good. Sorry. That on the no, no, no. You're fine. But something I've said on this podcast before multiple times is the more that I really dive into things, the more I realize how deeply connected so many issues are. So you might have one issue, right? Whether it be gun control, whether it be capitalism, whether it be the soullessness of a society, everything connects to like 15 other things. So in that, in that aspect, I completely understand what you're getting at. And I know it gets complicated, but I think that's something that everybody really needs to understand. You can't just address one tiny little fraction of a thing because it's connected to so many other issues. Well, I would argue that the soul is like, I think that is the root that we need to address yeah. and we don't address it because that's the hard one to address. There's things I learned in meditation, right? Like so, you know, a lot of my background, I went through an incredibly abusive relationship that left me in tatters afterwards. And I had to do a lot of work internally and it was uncomfortable work to your, to your point, but you really do look in the mirror and you start to see things in a different way. And I think through that meditation was one of my anchors that I really used to kind of pull out. And one of the things in meditation that I really kind of clung onto and held onto was this notion that, you know, whenever we use material goods to try to satisfy that emptiness inside of us. It never does. Like whenever we attain what we think is going to make us happy, we just want more. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a never-ending cycle, right? And I think there's something more meaningful that we we can make us more full than anything materialistic. For me, for an example, like I could feel more fulfilled going up on a mountain at midnight in the middle of West Virginia and taking photographs of the stars. Like to me, that's that's almost spiritual to me. And I get a lot more fulfillment out of that than anything I would ever buy or anything I would ever attain or anything I would ever go after. I do think this is a downside of capitalism. To be fair, I think we've we've bled into consumerism at this point. We're a little bit beyond capitalism, but I think this country believes that we can buy our way to happiness. It's like we can medicate ourselves to happiness. And the truth is, is that we're not really dealing with the underlying issue. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is going with the idea of values, right? We live in a country that values consumerism and capitalism almost above all else, I would say. But how do you marry those two? Is there a way to marry them? You know, capitalism, consumerism with the things that, you know, the example you mentioned, right, going on top of a, of a mountain in West Virginia, taking pictures of the stars and, and that making you feel fulfilled. I know it's a very specific example, but everybody has a variation of that specific example for them. So is there a way to marry those two if the society itself not only values, but is basically built on an, an idea and an ideology that almost goes against that? I'll give you a great, I'll give you a great analogy with that camera. Mm-hmm. So I have a pretty decent camera, I don't know, $700 or something like that. It is insane that I can take a camera and you can take pictures of the night sky. I don't know, like 13 megapixels. That's capitalism. Capitalism drove that engineering, that product development, yeah. right? Consumerism would be being, instead of me focusing on taking great pictures with this camera, man, if I really had a $2,000 camera, I bet you my picture would look a lot better, mm-hmm. right? Which I would catch myself thinking that. But then I'd be like, well, wait, what the fuck? Like, why don't I just get as good as I can with this camera that I have, enjoy it, 
Mm-hmm. And then if I really did get to a point where like my skills have out, not outdone, but just out, okay. outgrown this camera would, you know, then go buy something. But that's like, in my mind, like the two, the difference between the two. So I think capitalism can be a very good thing because mm-hmm. I think you can drive innovation and free markets can do a lot of good. But the flip side is that they're always trying to sell you something. Right. And so consumerism bleeds into, I don't want to take the time to learn how to hone my photographic skills. I just want to buy the most expensive camera and take the best pictures. Right. It seems like we all want to take shortcuts. And the truth is, is like sometimes the fun is all the mishaps along the way of becoming a better photographer and learning that skill. How do you marry it on a larger scale? Mm-hmm. It goes right into pop culture. I mean, who do our kids grow up idolizing? Who are they watching on TV? Who are they listening to? Like, that's what they're going to think is what makes people happy, right? Because that's what they're basically conditioned on growing up. Yeah. So I think that's pretty important too. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like what happened to this country over the past, you know, since post-World War II, like how did we get to this point? Like what happened? Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Why is it interesting? Because <laughs> it, there's not like one moment where you could point to and say, like, well, this is where everything turned. It was like a slow evolution. You know, if you look back at Rome and some of the history of Rome, basically when the Republic fell and when they became a dictatorship under Caesar and then eventually the empire, it has similar veins to what we're going through right now. But it happened over hundreds of years. It wasn't like there wasn't a one moment you could look at. And say, oh, that was fulcrum. Mm-hmm. It was really a progression over time. So when you look at us, you know, I always try to look back at our history and try to figure out what was that fulcrum. But there really isn't one. When my grandfather passed, he was 80, so that was 10 years ago. Um, and I was lucky enough to get to spend some time with him and talk to him. And uh, he told me what his life was like. And it was just amazing kind of listening to him growing up in the, you know, the 30s and, and kind of what he went through compared to like what, what we go through. And there's a mindset that changes because we don't struggle the way that our grandparents did. And I think that that changes our mindset. It's all relative. And I don't know. If I had the answer to that question, well, I wouldn't say I'd run for office. I'll never run for office. But I would uh, write a book about it and at least like sure. share it with everybody. I just, I find that hollowness to be like the root of a lot of the problems that we run into. And you can see it in people. You can see, like, they might not even recognize it, but they're searching for something. No, um, I would agree with you. I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I think that yeah, no. is a big part of the problem. But that's what I mean. is like when it comes to a society that's driven by profit, you're going to have some element of hollowness. It's not it's just how profit, do you find though. the balance? Right. So Between. it's not just profit. It's also think about this way too, right? So I'm sorry. I no, totally you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree with you on the profit piece because profit yeah. is what creates consumerism, right? I dropped my iPhone in the, the ocean the other day. So I had to go buy another iPhone. So I go buy this new iPhone. It's a thousand dollars. And Apple does not even include a plug for it. Like that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> but is it ridiculous? Because I went in there and bought one. So at the end of the day, I still bought the phone, right? So yeah, I get the profit part is bad and that I agree with you on that part, but there's other things going on and, you know, going through a lot of therapy of what I went through. One of the most interesting things I found through therapy versus what I see in, in, in culture is that there's this push to always be happy, like always be happy, like only think happy thoughts and only chase happy thoughts, which is kind of counter to what I learned in therapy. So you don't learn in therapy to like wallow in negative emotions. But if you don't address them, then they become repressed. And we kind of live in this hallmark society where we're almost taught like thinking anything negative at all is bad. But that's actually counterproductive to actually going through things and learning and processing things and dealing with it. Again, to your earlier point about how it's a complex web of you can't pinpoint one specific piece. I mean, profit would be one piece. Our constant inability to sit any type of pain at all for even a second as another piece. I think social media has been a soul destroyer. So, and it's interesting coming from someone who's a digital advertiser. 
Right. I see it from a different angle. And then I think just technology has made us much more impulsive. So we expect things much more, much quicker. And that's just fascinating about like, history. You think about like the Mayans and like what they built, but then they didn't have an iPhone, man. Like they, at night, like, they were just looking up at stars. Like, that's all they saw. It's, they had all the time in the world to look up at stars, do stuff like that, and to figure out the constellations, to figure out the galaxy and map it all out. It's just really fascinating if you think about where we are compared to like the soul that ancient civilization had versus, or even souls that people had 300 years ago versus what we have now. I know this episode is going to be so spiritual, you know? Well, for now, I guess. I don't know. But <laughs> I was just going to say, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the, the ancient civilizations, that's the word, and what their existence might have been like. And you start to wonder, does the existence shape the values or do the values shape your existence? With a capitalist, consumerist society, it's it's harder. Like the Mayans, they weren't living in a culture that sort of valued the almighty dollar. So of course they could look up in the sky and appreciate the beauty. But with a society like ours, when your value on a personal level comes down to, well, what can you earn your company? What sort of profits can you bring? Well, you, I, so this I think, is where I have, yeah. I don't, that's not how I view capitalism. So right. to me, and and this is some things I've learned in my career personally. Mm-hmm. So there've been many times in my career where I've done things that other people have taken credit for or yeah. that I haven't been rewarded for. And in the end, everything I do is for me. It's not for the company. Like at the end of the day, that project that I did that someone took credit for, I'm still putting it on my resume and I can still right. speak to it in another interview. It still makes me better. It makes my skill set better it makes me more valuable question does your company Mm -hmm. see you that way does your boss see you that way you is different some people are not in an upper position of their company and maybe they don't have that leisure of just knowing that they contributed in that way and it really does matter if their boss sees them that way or not i wouldn't put it to me being an upper position Mm -hmm. because i'm honestly not really now i would put it more towards ability to present your value so that's an important piece because i think some people struggle with that like they have a hard time marketing their value in an interview or something like that but then also like i myself am a product right and i'm building that and i'm going to market that and if my the company i'm at doesn't value that then i'm going to make myself valuable enough that other companies will and i'll just go to another company i understand there's different circumstances for everybody and everyone goes to different things of course but i also view capitalism at its core nature is i produce x you produce y and we exchange them and that's so you need to be bartering if you want to get a capitalist and in that sense money is just a representation of our labor hours or our, our value that we put into something that we're trading you get into like industrial capitalism which is we're really post-industrial at this point we're more information age but Mm-hmm. it changes, right? Because all right, capitalism in agricultural age, but then with the industrial revolution, it really commoditized labor, mm-hmm. which made labor much different. The corporate piece, and I don't, know, I don't have answers for that. There's a lot of problems with that. It's interesting because I always wonder your question about do the values drive the ex- existence or the existence drive the values? Mm-hmm. I would say it's probably in the middle. It's probably not one or the other. I do think technology has really driven a lot of values unintentionally. Yeah. I think technology was originally something to make our lives easier, to make us more productive, to take monotonous tasks off our plates so we could produce more or, or, or do cooler things, innovate. But I think there's been some side effects to that, that. Think about it. Like you're old enough to remember when you had flip phones and you didn't have a smartphone in your hand and you could just Google anything at the, at the you know, any revealing question. revealing my age. I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, you're like 32. Like. Yeah, 32. <laughs> um, but you couldn't just take pictures of your phone and send it to people or post it. Think about the social dynamics that changes right there. 
Like I always think back to like when I was in high school, thank God I didn't have Facebook or like a smartphone. Like that's brutal. And it all has unintended consequences. I was thinking about that earlier today, again, in my little private bathroom conversation where I was practicing <laughs> questions I was going to ask you. Because when it comes to social media in particular, you know, again, like everything is so connected. And I feel like any issue you, you discuss today, social media will be involved in some capacity as a contributor or root cause or whatever. When you were talking about the hollowness of society, I love that, by the way. It's such a good way of putting it. Social Thanks, media. I copyright it, so you feel free to use it whenever you want. Thank you. You don't want to copyright it? <laughs> no. Um, no, I was just going to say that social media, the irony is it was started as this way of connecting more and yeah. you know, being able to converse more, you know, make people feel less isolated. The actual consequence has been, I feel like people feel even lonelier and even more isolated, more small, more unseen than they ever did. There's definitely a phrase for that. I don't want to say Frankenstein's monster, but it's kind of like that, right? Like you build something with mm -hmm. unintended consequences and or intended consequences, and then it completely flips and it turns into something completely unexpected. And then you don't really know how to control it. Like, how do you, what do you do now? I don't know. And it sort of ties into something else that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, the whole cancel culture thing. My theory behind cancel culture is that it is a consequence of people feeling small and powerless. So you have the information age that we're in and you have people's ability to find out things about, you know, people in power, famous people, whatever, more than they ever were before. And then you have social media, which makes people feel small. And then you combine that, especially with the Trump era, which I think was the era where a presidency was most involved in the internet and social media than any other presidency. It led a lot of people to believe there was a lot of corruption, there was a lot of grifting, but no accountability. So you combine all these things, what's the natural result? You have people who will use whatever they can to hold people accountable and feel powerful. And that, in essence, is cancel culture. I don't know if that's a logical conclusion or not. It's my conclusion. I don't know if you would agree with it. I think I would agree with parts of it. You kind of came out from a different angle I did. I, was, I would say cancel culture is about power. Ultimately, it's about power. That's what I mean, yeah. But I think I would take a step back and I would say, okay, I agree with the social media piece, but let's, before we even get to that piece, so you say people feel powerless, right? Well, why do they feel powerless, right? Mm -hmm. Is it actual or is it, you know, I think social media plays into that as well. Mm -hmm. If you think of social media, people are presenting their best days on social media. They're not presenting their worst. Mm -hmm. And so if you go on a social media and your worst day, you see everyone having your best day, you're comparing yourself to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you feel like you're getting screwed and, and everyone else is living a great life and you're not, but really you're not seen behind the scenes. And I think that dynamic is a lot more in the roots than we realize of mm -hmm. what's happening. I think it creates an alternate universe. The part of cancel culture that I have a huge concern about, I should say, is the going back 10 years and looking at people's tweets or whatever it is and just kind of hunting for people to target them, right? I think where I'm a little more forgiving is like when you're going back and grabbing a tweet from someone at 16 or 17, because when they're minors, I mean... We know from psychology, your brain's you're not even fully developed. Ass. Like, yeah, you're a dumbass. Dude. Like, you shouldn't be held accountable. That's yeah. why we have laws in the books that minors, you, you know, your records are cleaned after 18. Yeah. I think that's a bigger issue to me. Adults, if you were an adult 10 years ago and you were using some of the terms that have come out, I mean, I don't know. It wasn't okay 10 years ago. It's not okay now. And just context. I mean, it is fascinating because you've touched on it. Watching all of this unfold is so depressing because the interconnected world that we live in, we have so much potential. 
And instead of taking advantage of that, we're using it to club each other. And it's kind of sad if you look at like human history, this is why the Gutenberg press was such a big invention was because before that, you had to be a rich person to have a book written for you. Gutenberg Press made mass printing possible and it started to allow middle class and lower class to have books. And so that's the spread of information, right? Well, now you fast forward to the age of the internet where like, I mean, how much money did it cost you to get a podcast off the ground? Elena, it costs you almost nothing, right? The barrier of entry into like getting your ideas out to the world is almost nil. And instead of us taking advantage of that and evolving and becoming better and like as humanity across the globe, we're just clubbing each other with it. And that's by design. It's by design. You don't think it's a natural human instinct? I cannot tell you how many times in the past year I have literally had to pinch myself and be like, oh, this is a part of the dystopian book where I would be reading it and say, this can't happen in real life. And I was watching it happen. You know, Orwell warned heavily about this. Even Thomas Friedman wrote about this in some of his early books in the early 2000s. When there's that much information, you can't censor information. What you do is you misdirect Yeah. because you can't stop it. It's going to come out, right? You know, my buddy lived in China for years and he said he had this famous story. It's kind of funny because you're seeing it happen today in America right now as we speak, especially with some stuff going on at the border. But he was in China maybe 10 years ago, living in Shanghai, and they were building this intercontinental rail system that was really touted by the party as like a big thing for the country. It is this really bad accident out in the middle of nowhere. Government tried to cover it up and act like it never happened. And people had pulled out their cell phones to take pictures of it and it got out on the internet. That's why in China, like they don't believe their media or their government because they know they're lying to them. It changes the game, right? Because now all of a sudden you have like this on the ground footage that circumvents some of these narratives where you were censoring before. So now those who seek to basically control what we think or what we're thinking about, they start to misdirect us into different directions because they can't stop the flow of information. It's what is a shiny dog that we're going to get or a shiny dog, shiny object that we're going to throw out there today to get everyone to focus on. So they're not focusing on these three other things. But I think that's why if, if you notice in our political cycle on a daily basis, every single day, there's a new topic. It tends to come out of the Twitter sphere, which is what I noticed over the pandemic. It'll start as something in Twitter and then it'll go out to all the news networks. And that's, that's the talking point for the day that we're all talking about. And not to throw the Descartes quote again at you, but if you're be a real seeker of truth, I would just challenge people to start looking beyond that. What else is going on that day? What are the things that they're not talking about? Because that's typically what they don't want you to see. There's an argument that a lot of the reason the news media does that, taking their cues from Twitter itself and what's trending on Twitter, because it's a profit-driven model. So, of course, they would take something that's trending because that will be something that gets hits. That will be something that gets attraction. That'll be something that generates any sort of results in terms of clicks and views and whatever. So what in your mind would be a potential fix for that, if anything, Do you change the entire journalistic model? Do you change the kinds of people that get involved in journalism? Like, what is the answer? Because if you're going to have a profit-driven model, in my mind, you have to push things that are going to quote-unquote sell. Otherwise, your business is inept, right? I mean, they've always done that, right? Even before the age of the internet. What changed with the internet was you had the rise of the bloggers, right? And the bloggers weren't held to the same standard that journalists were. So the bloggers could just report on stuff. They didn't have to have sources or verify it. So a lot of things they were reporting were wrong, but they were scooping the journalists and some things. And what ended up happening was the public started reading blogs more than they did newspapers. The newspapers then had to change. It wasn't necessarily they were 
changing what they were focusing on, but what they were doing was they stopped verifying because they, they were trying to beat out the bloggers. And then the other big thing that changed, and this was like a really big piece, is the revenue models, which you just asked about. People would go to a newspaper, you had a circulation of X, and if I want to reach X people, then I had to pay X amount of money, and I got an ad put in the paper, and I knew in theory that I got in front of X amount of eyeballs, right? But when Google came out with like the pay-per-click model, I'm not paying broad brush like that anymore, right? I'm paying for only certain impressions of certain people when they click it. That changed the whole advertising revenue piece. And it's interesting because one of my good friends, his dad was a career advertising person for the Washington Post and Washington Times. And he talked about this, like how much that changed. And I think newspapers struggled for a long time with that because they started originally trying to do pay gates and paywalls. Mm. Got a lot of pushback on that. I'll always have a lot of sympathy for journalists and for the journalism industry. I personally do not think that journalists are in there making calls and stories based on what they think will make money, what they don't. I don't think that's what's going on. I think they live in a bubble. Mm. I do think that. I think people in DC live in a bubble. I'm from Baltimore, so I I know that area very well. But I don't think they're going in every day being like, okay, we got to make money or or we got to screw this person. I don't think it's what their mindset is at all. I think they're in a like, very can it hard be a spot. Combination? What do you mean? Like, can it be a combination of like, we're trying to do good work, but we also want to, you know, quote unquote, push a product that's going to sell. So you gotta remember how, how newspapers work, right? So journalists are the ones who write the papers mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, write the articles. And yeah. then the editors are the ones who decide what's going to get front page, what's not. So the editors really making the calls of what, what's going to move, yeah. what's going to be the big buzz, right? And they're obviously have a say in like your headlines and like how you're structuring things. So the question is, are the editors getting pressure from conglomerates? So we learned in journalism school way back about the seven conglomerates, which were every media company rolled up under one of the big corporate umbrellas. In real world terms today, like this is something I always thought during the pandemic, you know, Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post. Amazon's making an awful lot of money off these lockdowns and small businesses go under and Amazon's scooping them up. That seems like a conflict of interest to me. I don't know if there was any influence, but it's it's a precarious situation, right? It's something that we would have talked about since seven conglomerates back in 2000, but we didn't seem to talk about it now. I don't know. Is Jeff Bezos putting pressure on editors in Washington Post? I have no idea. Pressure isn't only exerted in that way. Sometimes mm-hmm. pressure is implied, right? Like if an editor knows you're going to write something that's counter to the people signing his paycheck's position, maybe they're not courageous enough to run that story and risk their job. You know what I mean? Isn't it dangerous to assume that? You don't know. You're just yeah, imagining. That's what, that's what I said. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. Like, I don't think it's that nefarious. I'm not going to say who I work for at the time. It's not my current employer. But I've seen the Twitter effect internally at a corporation. Twitter is dangerous. It's a dangerous platform. Statistics will show you that less than 20% of the country is tweeting. It's Yet not. they hold that up as a litmus test for, for the country. Again, to be clear, not my current employer. I'm not speaking for them in any way, shape, or form. But previous employers I've worked for, I've seen it happen where we would run advertising campaigns and Twitter would say, the reps would come in and say, oh, well, your campaign did great because look at all these people tweeting about it on Twitter. And in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you're taking a sampling of 15% of the country okay. that's already indexing high towards wanting to be on Twitter. So they all have the same type of psychographic back background. Uh, so it's not, it's not a very good, it's not like a random sampling by any stretch of imagination, but we're making decisions based on that because we think that that's the voice of America. There wasn't Weird. always like a thing. I think Twitter would have been dead and not been for Trump. No one was really tweeting that much. Right. I, I didn't hear much about it. And then Trump became president and he was on yeah. Twitter saying dumb shit all the time. I swear to God, I don't know why that guy just couldn't walk away from his Twitter account. And then that's all we were talking about all day. And it like, think about all the money Twitter made off of Trump. So I don't know how Twitter became that. I really don't. I was around, I mean, I'm old man. I was in digital advertising when Twitter first launched. Yeah. And then I had my account and then I hadn't been on it in years. And then I went back on during COVID and I was like, holy shit, like this is the biggest dumpster fire I've ever fucking seen in my life. <laughs> like enough. it's straight up. It is straight up a dumpster fire, dude. Like there is 
nothing coherent coming out of Twitter at all. And I just got off. I actually deleted my account. Like, this is ridiculous. But it's sad that our talking points for the day are coming out of that environment where it's very much a blue team versus red team, club yeah. the other one, who cares? That's the mentality. And that is a bad mentality. So why do media companies, why do they make that choice to Cause say, because it's, it's easy? Yeah, it's easy. So if they didn't do that, what should they be doing instead? I mean, what you would typically do is you would do some type of quantitative surveying. So you're actually getting random samples and understanding some of those elements, right? And the big companies like Nielsen and a lot of those companies are still doing that. But I think Twitter, it's just kind of a sexy option. Like, oh, look, it's so organic. Personally, I don't understand Twitter, dude. I, I don't get it. Like, I see people tweeting at celebrities. and I'm like, why would you ever do that? Like, do you really think you're talking to that person? So it's all foreign to me. Twitter is fairly new by all things considered, right? Like, I, I remember when it started. I'm not as old as you, but I remember. <laughs> I know, I'm like an old man. I don't think anybody took it seriously. And I remember thinking, this is just such a narcissism project. This is just a way for people to feel more validation. That's pretty much it. I just didn't realize how true that would be all these years later. But it's just Isn't it also very indicative of our society? Because if you look at Twitter, it's it's not 140 characters anymore, whatever the character count is these days. But it's short short snippets, right? What's the biggest problem in our society when you talk about these things? People don't have depth of knowledge behind it. It's all surface level. Maybe Twitter understood at the time that people want to feel seen. They want validation. Could be totally wrong. I'm trying to remember when it came out, what was going on at the time. Like I know Facebook was around and like statuses were a thing at that point, I think. I I don't remember. That's crazy. I don't remember that. Right. It's, It's so long ago. But like maybe they were tapping into something that already existed again like the irony is oh here's a way to make people feel more seen and and affect more valued but the end result is really quite the opposite the focus at the time was less about the connection piece and more about the dissemination of information so like the story that really made twitter big so when it first came out everyone was like i don't get it 140 characters yeah it was mostly a digital marketing thing everyone in digital marketing was using it and we were swapping articles but it was that earthquake in china that happened that got out on twitter before the journalists got it out and that was a big turning point for twitter because that was when people realized wait a minute we can get information quicker from each other from crowdsourcing it than we can through these filters that's the thing social media isn't all bad it was a noble cause in the beginning because in theory you don't want information filtered through small hands because if it's filtered through small sources, it's easier to censor, it's easier to Mm -hmm. pick and choose, it's easier to control, right? What we ended up doing was we traded one authoritarian for another. Now we have the big tech that are controlled. They are the filters. And so when you have Google, I shouldn't say it's not a trade, but like the fear of it or Ah, what we thought was the media company, not government, but the media companies, they were controlling information that we saw. Whether or not that fear was real or not, I don't know, but that was the fear back then. But today, if you look at the big tech companies, they have a complete stranglehold on information. Google has a biggest stranglehold on information of anybody. If you don't show up in their Google search, you don't exist. Some people would prefer that. <laughs> they might, but that's a scary thing. It's also funny, not to digress, but you know, people always talk about World War III or insurrection, all these different things. And, they, and we always think about it in terms of the Industrial Revolution, but we're not in the Industrial Age anymore. We're in the Information Age. Wars of today are not fought with guns. They're going to be fought over information. That's really where, where the battles are taking place right now. And if you want an example of that, look at China. That's what China's been doing for the past 10 years. Like, within their own borders. So it's interesting because if you look at big tech and the power they do have, and they kind of seem to be unchecked right now. 
So it's, it is a scary time. So when it comes to these media companies and the social media networks and, you know, big tech, there's a lot of debate now over how much control they are allowed to exercise and the ethics and how far the line should be drawn in terms of what they do, in terms of who can say what on their platform. But when it comes down to the decisions that these media companies have been making, most people I've listened to via podcast or in person regardless really of of ideology would say we don't want these companies having any say it shouldn't be jack dorsey or mark zuckerberg's choice and who says what and what's considered acceptable speech or not but when you look at something like the capital riots when you look at i hate to use the word movement but when you look at movements like QAnon or, or really any movement that propagates violence or hate it does become sort of a debate about is there a responsibility there? Is there a responsibility to step in and say, this kind of crosses a line? Or should you just let things go as they are and the average citizen should determine it for themselves? I know so, I already know your answer to this, but... <laughs> two, two things I'm going to answer this on. Again, I'm a classical liberal. I would agree with Bill Maher on this one. I may hate what you have to say, but I will defend to death your right to say it. And that's how I, I vehemently believe in that. So my grandparents had this book, uh, Best Cartoons of 1965. There was this one joke in there and it was uh, these two guys in an art gallery and every picture on the wall was like a nude woman in a different pose. And one of the guys said, I don't really know what he's trying to say, but I will defend his death the right to say it. <laughs> Anyway, and th- these these are the cartoons you were you were looking at when you were like how old again? <laughs> how old are you? Uh, I mean, that's not too bad. No. The second thing I would say is, and and this is I find this very dangerous too. I'm not going to actually address the topic. I'm going to address the framework. Okay. When you look at the principles, right? So this is enlightened principles coming out of the Enlightenment era, which is really what I'm rooted in most of my thinking. Because I was a big student of philosophy. I firmly believe in those ideas of logic. You have to separate objective from subjective, right? And so when you get into terms of like propagating hate, yeah, no one wants to propagate hate. Mm-hmm. That becomes a very subjective term though. And if there's no guardrails around that, then that very quickly becomes a broad brush used to quelch dissenting views, even if they aren't actually propagating hate, right? So it's a subjective slide on that. So that's where we have to be very careful with not applying subjective rules on things like speech because it can be very quickly changed. There's a lot of examples I can give you this, but I'm going to give you one really clear one. Look at the ACLU. In the 1980s, ACLU was defending the right of neo-Nazis to march in Jewish town mm-hmm. as free speech because ACLU believed in free speech. Mm-hmm. Give me five minutes on a stage with a neo-Nazi in front of everyone who wants to come watch it and I will show the whole world why neo-Nazis are idiots and they are just backwards and they shouldn't be taken seriously. Like they're literally just dumb people. Like, And I would much rather handle it that way than censor somebody, make them a martyr because by censoring them, you are martyring them and you're giving them strength. And I would want to do the opposite, just dismantle them. But the ACLU today would defend the right of censoring neo-Nazis. So in 40 years, years, ACLU has gone that far. And the ACLU is supposed to be protecting civil liberties. And one of those core civil liberties is free speech. And I think Nietzsche said it. Basically, in summary, like, what is the point of free speech if it doesn't apply to speech you hate? There is none. If free speech only applies to speech you agree with, what's the point of it? I would agree with that. But I think that, again, it comes back to the question I asked earlier, right? Do the values shape the society or does society shape the values? So when it comes to the ACLU's evolution, why did it evolve that way? Was it because they were following society's trends or they were sort of leading the trend and shaping the trend? I mean, I don't know enough about the ACLU to say, but this is, again, like why I say so many things are interconnected. 
because they might have been defending neo-Nazis all those years ago, but changing their stance on things, is that because of a societal influence or because they genuinely believed this was the better stance to take? Did they evolve as an organization and decide we no longer think this is a worthy thing to defend and this is actually a thing to be reprimanded, right? Because I think it's it's fair for organizations to change their stance on certain things, especially when it comes to something like neo-Nazis. But you kind of just touched on it, right? Something you just said just kind of touched on it. Mm -hmm. ACLU wasn't defending neo-Nazis in the 80s. They were defending free speech. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference, Mm -hmm. right? And for me, okay, I'll give you two other examples of that. Flag burning, right? Mm -hmm. Like I hate it when people burn flags, but it's protected by the First Amendment. Supreme Court's already ruled on that. But some people would definitely see burning a flag as hateful speech towards America. So if they subjectively think that, like, why is their opinion less than someone who thinks even Nazis hate speech? You know what I mean? So it gets in that subjective grounds. Right. And I think the easier way, the cleaner way of doing it is saying all speech, as long as you're not inciting violence, is protected. The second one is like, look at lawyers, right? Like I, I, I took my LSATs. I could have gone to law school. Mm-hmm. I decided that the world has enough lawyers. I don't need another one. Although I think in hindsight, I probably should have been a lawyer, but <laughs> you know, what if you're in a, what if you're a defense attorney and you're defending like someone who's a really bad person, like a murderer or a serial killer or something like that. Right. And I have a really good friend who's a federal defender and I, I've talked to him about this. And, and what he says to me is he's not defending that person. He's defending that person's constitutional rights. Mm. And it's really important because if he doesn't do it, that person's going to have an appeal and they're going to get out. Mm. And that's why he's doing it. It's, it has mm. nothing to do with that person. He's not defending that person. He's defending the framework of our con- of our constitutional republic. And I, I kind of view speech as the same way. So when do you think that nuance and context became so lost? It happened in schools. It happened underneath our noses. I've thought a lot about this, actually. I'm going to say something that's not going to be very popular, okay. but I don't really give a shit. I was very fucking lucky that I had really good teachers. And my teachers all taught me the same thing. We don't care what your opinion is. We just care that you back it up. Are you making a coherent argument? Is it logical? That was lost somewhere along the way. And I think it's interesting because I was watching that Netflix. Have you watched the Netflix documentary on the college admission scandal? No. Which one is it's this? Fast. It's crazy. I think it just came out. I was well, thinking the, like- the Rich white bitches that, yeah, okay. The thing that was crazy was there was an in-between person so there was a guy like basically being like the admissions coach, which I guess is a thing now. Like college admissions. Has Let me crazy. get that job, please. <laughs> so this guy had connections to like these coaches and he was making uh, donations to like the schools and then people were paying him a bunch of money and he was guaranteeing them that, he, that they would get accepted. It was like, this crazy scheme, right? And I'm sitting there thinking like, where did the whole point of fucking education get lost in all of this? Right. Like the whole point of education is to learn something. Yeah. But this is all about like grades. And so um, I fear, like my hypothesis is that schools become more about regurgitation than it has about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And as we use more standardized tests, it's more about how do I take the test to get a good score to get me into college versus how do I learn the information or learn how to think through it. Schools become very regimented in a sense of like, if you can memorize the right answers on a test, you'll get good grades. Doesn't mean you understand the subject matter. It right. means you were able to memorize it. And that's all you're doing is trying to get good grades. You get to the good school with a scholarship. And then, then once you go to the good school, then you get a guaranteed high-paying job. You know, that guaranteed high-paying job that every college promises you that doesn't really for, uh, come into fruition I after they've taken all your money. <laughs> yeah. Going but, to an art school, you don't exactly get promised that. But I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the problem of like where you ask where the nuance is coming from. We're not focused on that through our education anymore. 
this is why I talk about values a lot on this show is because I think the values have become all skewed. And this is something that is mentioned in that book that I recommended you take a gander. Oh, I knew you were going to bring that up on this podcast. <laughs> but he does talk about this. He talks about how the values have become all fucked up. So if the values, and he talks about this in terms of jobs specifically and, and, and why people go to college, it's not for the reasons why you say it's sort of a loss. You know, it's not to more deeply understand a subject. It's to just get the grades, to pass, to get the diploma, to get the high paying yeah. job. And that's one of his biggest criticisms is that it sort of, it not only takes away from progress, but it also skews the values of a society. Because if you take it as a parent, if you understand that that's the goal, you're not going to set your child up from the very beginning to deeply understand things or think critically or do any of the things that are really truly valuable. You're going to do whatever you need to do to set them on the path to get them to the place where society as a whole will expect them to be. And if society doesn't value the things like thinking critically, thinking deeply, really understanding things, progress, all these things, then why would parents ever set their, their children up on, on, on that path? It's not going to get them anywhere. So I just don't know where it all kind of got messed up. But I, I, I mean, I don't want to blame capitalism necessarily because I, I don't think capitalism inherently is a bad idea. But I do think that it has an ability to sort of skew values in the wrong way, especially when people sort of start to get it into their heads that, well, this is what I need to do to get ahead. This is what I need to do to be valued. This is what I need to do to get that better job or to graduate. It's not necessarily things that have any deep meaning or worth. It's just about what's going to look good on the surface and what's going to get me the best paying job. Because everything is so connected, it's really hard to decipher where it started, how it started, how to fix it. But I, I, I do think that it's, it's a much bigger problem than maybe some progressives try to pin it all on a system or pin it all on one aspect of our society. I know when I talk to my family, a lot of times the answer goes back to all the way at the beginning of some like a child's education and how that child is raised. So it's two points on what you said. So one that's really interesting is in psychology, they're learning more and more and more that a lot of the disorders that you see in people today are rooted in generations back in their family. Because what happens is some event happened, caused great, 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 great grandfather to treat great, 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 great grandmother this way. And then the next generation learned that was how you treat your spouse. And then it all goes downhill, right? And like, yeah. yeah. And so like, there's some psychologists I've read articles about this, that they're digging into people's history and they're finding like, oh, like this crazy event happened, like right. the 1820s. And like, that's why this is all trickled downhill. And I think that's incredibly valid and incredibly fascinating. The second thing I would say is that I give full credit on this one to my mother because, look, man, I, I was an annoying ass kid. Like I was asking why every fucking five seconds about everything. Like, I, I was curious as shit. Shocking. It would have been very easy for my mother to just give me the answers and shut me up. That's not what she did. She taught me where to go find the answer myself. Mm. And that made a huge difference in my life. It made me much more independent in my thinking. My mother didn't work until my, my younger brother was in kindergarten, until we were both into elementary school. So she yeah. she was the one who stayed with us. She kind of formulated those values. And we sacrificed for that, man. Like we were a blue collar family. We went out with a lot of things. My mother could do that, but my mom believed very wholeheartedly in that. And just for full disclosure, by the way, like it could have been my dad, not my mom. Like no, no, it just no. my dad was in the military at the time. Where if you look at today, you know, something I was taught in sociology class was that if you look at our culture versus Eastern cultures, Eastern cultures, they live with a lot less. So like they don't have a TV in every room. They don't have these massive houses. They don't need all these things. Therefore, they're either saving more, more money or they're 
they have more focus on the family than they do on careers. And I think in the West, we tend to blame capitalism mm -hmm. because it's easy. It's easier to blame capitalism and blame the mayor. Well, we should be looking in the mayor and saying, why are we competing against the Joneses and sacrificing our family for that? Who really cares? Like, what's really important? But like, here's the thing, though, is capitalism is the thing that drives our society. And of course, it's going to shape people's values. And I'm not saying that people aren't guilty of overspending and going into debt and maybe putting their priorities in the wrong place. But at the end of the day, you do have to fight to get ahead and you do have to sort of shift your values around in order to make sure that you're staying above water and that you can provide your family with the kind of lives that they need in order to for them to succeed so i think that it's kind of a combination i don't want to place the full blame on capitalism again i think in essence it's an okay idea but when it starts to veer off a path and 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 lead society down in this direction where you start to sort of lose the things that you really need in order to have a fulfilling life Life, I do think that they do have to shoulder some of the blame, capitalism specifically, I mean. I do think a lot of it is up to the individual to decide, and, and I've talked to you about this specifically when it comes to COVID, is that I thought COVID would be an excellent break for our society as a whole to sort of reassess values and, you know, address certain shortcomings or, or issues and, and come out of it on the other side, a stronger, better society with values far more intact and in a better place than they were before we entered COVID. But I don't really know if that happens so much as as I wish it had. I think my counter would be, we've been a capitalist country for 250 years, mm -hmm. but this hollowness is much more of a modern phenomenon. So it's not capitalism that's changed, something else has changed, right? So if I ever try to like figure out a problem at work, like if one of my systems breaks down, the first thing I go to is like, when did it break down and what changed at that point? Like what's different? Because something, something I added to the equation that broke it all down and I got to find out what that different piece is, right? I'm oversimplifying this. There's a lot of different sure. aspects to this, but I would actually point more towards postmodernism is one of the, the real roots of this. There's just this feeling of nothing matters, right? That kind of comes from postmodernism and kind of this, this sense that like, we're just kind of specks of dust in the universe. Would you say that postmodernism is the same thing as late stage capitalism? I think some people would equate the definition you just gave with late stage capitalism. I don't know because we've never, as far as we know, we've never hit late stage capitalism. Right. Right. Yeah. Because we don't even know if we're in late stage capitalism now. Right. Like we could be, this could be the middle of the road. Who knows? Like sure. we, I think I'm talking more of the soul. Mm. So when you say capital, to me, capitalism is a tool. Like I think of it as a tool, right? I know it's an economic system, but it's like blaming a tool for what the beholder of the tool did. And that's where I have a problem, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're driving the car down the road and you rear end somebody, it's easy to say, oh, damn it. My brakes just weren't working very well. But really, like you should have been paying attention and you want to rear into that person. It was been fascinating for me, especially after 2019, where I did so much work internally and realized how much I had not been looking internally. I had been looking externally for a solution and they were all within me. It's interesting to kind of see it on a societal level because that's what we're doing. We keep finding scapegoats and things to blame, but we don't want to look in the mirror and say, well, why are we like this? The irony in this, the age old, like the political discourses gotten out of hand today like i i remember the days when i got called i just didn't like poor people because i was a conservative but now it's it's gone to a whole other level and the argument i would always make and, and counter that would be like it has nothing to do with me not liking poor people it has to do with i don't believe the best way forward for poor people is to put them on welfare i don't believe that's the most sustainable path i think there's a better way we can have an argument about that those are the conversations we should be having but we're not having them anymore we just knee-jerk reaction, blame things, and then we villainize things. And again, I think it's by design. I think it's all very hyperbolic propaganda that keeps us from really focusing on what's going on. But I also say everything's connected a million times and everything is connected to that as well. Like, there's a reason why it's a knee-jerk reaction. We're a very reactionary society. We're not proactive. We don't 
cut things off before they happen. Things slowly build up over time and get worse and worse and worse. And then we get after the snowball is like 10 feet tall, we look at it and we're like, oh shit, I don't know what to do now. And you well, can to be th- fair though, to yeah. be fair, we're in a weird age, right? Like this is, people forget this too. Like we're in the third revolution. This is all uncharted territory. No, for like, sure. Like if you really take a step back and think about it, I could sell a t-shirt to someone in China tonight and, sh- and they'll have it tomorrow. Like I can ship it around the globe and get it tomorrow. When in the history of humankind did commerce operate like that, or that you're able to do that? Never. No, for sure. And I and and in my last episode, James talked about how we're definitely in an adjustment period, and there's a lot of adjusting going on, whether people like it or not. I don't think when people talk about late stage capitalism or even capitalism that they're blaming capitalism, they're blaming the fact that a lot of things have been set up by design to ensure that certain people stay winners and other people either stay where they are or become worse off over time. So in your analogy, what did you use? The driver? Car? The car and the driver, yeah. Yeah, they're not really blaming the car. The car is the capitalism. They're blaming whoever it is behind the wheel that's shaping policy or influencing policy to make sure that people who are winning stay ahead and people who are not winning continue to not win. And that's the frustration. And I think that that's a very merited frustration because it's accurate. I mean, you could say, you know, get out and vote and get people into office who give a shit who are actually going to make a difference. But at the end of the day... If there's enough people who are blocking certain legislation to stop those actual changes and progress from happening, does it really matter? I don't know. Here's the bottom line. I think a lot of this is frustrating to me because capitalism to me, we let it happen. We let this happen to ourselves, right? Like if I don't like what a company's doing, I just don't buy their shit. It's pretty fucking simple. The power ultimately is in the power of the consumer in a capitalist society. Commodities are a little bit different, like electrical grids and things like that. I would say I I differ pretty drastically from my conservative, what I would call colleagues on healthcare, because I think medicine doesn't work inside capitalism because you'll pay anything to keep yourself alive. But for a lot of things, we're talking about consumer goods and things like that. Like ultimately we have all the power. We don't exert that though. That's that Marx quote, right? So religion is the opiate of the masses and in consumerism, it's convenience is the opiate of the masses. If it makes our lives convenient, we turn a blind eye to whatever that company is doing and still buy from that company. So at what point do we say enough is enough and we stop supporting that company? It's just frustrating because I do still think we have the power. Mm-hmm. I think we're losing it because we're not wielding it because mm-hmm. we're focused on the wrong thing. You know, when you talk about politicians, man, like it's interesting hearing everyone complain about politicians. My thing on politicians is this. The minute you had the phrase career politician, we were in trouble. Yeah. That was never how this was supposed to be set up. If someone's career is politics, the only objective they have is to get reelected, which means they're not out there fighting for any principles. They're going to do whatever they can to get reelected. Right. And that's what's gotten us in this mess. I have less of a problem with people with money going into politics, where I have a big problem with people with no money going into politics and coming out rich. They're public servants. It shouldn't be a vehicle to enrich yourself. And if they're enriching themselves, I mean, this is going to go back to Rand and Atlas Shrugs, but government doesn't produce wealth. It doesn't have anything to trade. You know what it has to trade? Favors. You know what favors are? They're building permits. They're zoning codes. They're those type of things that lobbyists are going in there and putting money to the advantage you're talking about. It's coming from the very same corporations because they're the ones who are able to pay off the politicians to get those favors and to be able to do those things that they want to do. It's all be done behind the scenes. I'm obviously not a big fan of lobbyists at, at all in any way, shape, or form. But that's happening at every company. It's not just the oil companies. It's not just the, no, the it's targets. But it, every, all those companies have lobbyists. Is it's happening across the board. At the end of the day, it's just like you can say about what you want about politicians, but if politicians are being influenced by that, regardless of whether they're a career politician or not, if they're being influenced by these companies to act in the favor of the companies versus the favor of the citizen, 
that's an issue. It has to do with their values. That's why 2018 was sort of inspiring to me because I saw a lot of people get into office for the first time who were either teachers or college professors or some kind of career where they weren't being driven by money and they got into it literally to make a difference and fight for the people and force accountability and people who need to be held accountable. That's it. At the end of the day, I think people really question their values and and, and what we really want our society to look like moving forward. I mean, I try and think about this on a personal level all the time. Like when it comes to my values, what makes me feel fulfilled, but also needing an income. It's a hard line to walk. And I think that a lot of people are either starting to get to that place where they're trying to figure out the same thing, or they're a little older and they're realizing they're not happy and their life hasn't had the kind of meaning that they want. And they're trying to figure out how to get that meaning. I'm sure it's possible. Plenty of people have have had it. Is there a means for almost everybody in our society, at least in the States, to reach that place in a capitalist society where you always are going to have winners and losers? Can you be a loser and still have fulfillment and still have a successful, quote unquote, successful life if you don't? But this have- is what I find fascinating about you. Yeah. This is what I find so fascinating about you. You are actually a classical liberal. You, you're much more in my line of thinking than you realize. You just, <laughs> you, your labels are off, right? So, like, I don't label I agree myself. With you. I not, not labeling yourself. Who you view as the villains and the heroes in the story is off, right? So, a couple things to clear up from your description of me uh, on your other podcast. So, so number one, I'm, I'm definitely not a Republican. I, I, I hate the Republicans as much as I hate the Democrats. I don't believe in politicians. Like, I have a problem with all politicians. And then number two would be, I've never understood. So, one of the saddest things about the pandemic to me personally was watching the small businesses go under all along up and down Third Ave that I knew all. I might not even know their name, but I knew their faces. And watching those businesses go under was so sad to me. And and then Amazon comes right behind them and just builds their empire and makes this all vanilla where it's taking away our individuality and all of our unique qualities that we would drive into a small business and turn it into this monolithic, sanitized, Borg-esque type of environment, right? So I don't want to live in a world where I have to buy everything from Amazon. One of my favorite things about New York City is how unique all the stores are. Like you go down some streets and the, the stores are so boutique and so unique. And I love that. But to go back to your point about driving that capitalist, right? So you have all these small businesses that maybe that is their passion. Like they do drive, they, they created a small business. That is what they love. Yeah. They got put out of business. And now everyone's just a factory worker for Amazon. Right there, like what you just talked about, that takes a soul out of people, right? I feel in some ways, big tech's actually controlling us more than the government is at this point. I think they're lobbying a lot behind the scene and they're just kind of funneling us, us into Androids, basically. That's what we're becoming. It's, it's interesting because I always hear, I don't want to say your side because it's not us versus them. That's not what I mean. But I, I always hear the left complain about corporate interests, but there's certain corporations that they don't question, Amazon being one of them. Um, Every Nike left being another. questions Amazon. AOC fought to keep them from coming here. Nobody likes Amazon. It's just like you said, convenience is the opiate of the masses, right? Like they have the best prices. They get to you the quickest. So you fucking, you go to them. Same way people go to fucking Walmart or they go to Target. Like, is this what they do? But going back to something that you said before about how we have the power to boycott. There's a lot of power behind that, but we sort of lost it. Well, I think part of that goes back to all these companies have sort of started to buy up all these other companies. So you could boycott XYZ, but if they're owned by Amazon, right, does it really matter? They own like 50 other companies. Facebook is the same way. Nestle is the same way. Does it really matter? Is the boycott ever going to be as effective as it might have been once? 
ultimately in, in the end a boycott isn't necessarily about hitting their bottom line it's about instilling mm-hmm. fear and making them yeah. do it that way right and i've seen this happen on the other side i've been in that yeah. happen well that's true it's not a revenue hit it's that yeah. once they start seeing the commotion they freak out and they change course right mm. um does it matter to amazon I, that's a good question amazon's too big at this point right but i can tell you i cut my amazon prime the minute they they did that stuff with parlor i was done that crossed the line for me like once you start de-platforming platforms which yeah. The irony in all that is all the, the, the studies that came out afterwards, the rioters in the DC actually did not coordinate on Parler. They coordinated on Facebook and Twitter. So that's the irony in all that, by the way. So that's a great example. This is how fucked up this all is and why I kind of feel like I'm going crazy sometimes is that basically what Twitter and Facebook were able to do is they used that cover to take out a competing product. They ganged up the big tech and they knocked out. Parler, who was really making inroads, like they weren't by any search imagination as big as Twitter, but they were getting a lot of subscribers. It's interesting to see it be played out like that and how people are taking advantage of it. Look, the questions you're asking, we don't have answers to. I know. I wish we had more conversations like this. I don't mean you and I, just mean as a society in, the world. in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that scares me about today is that for me, on a political level, I don't identify myself with politics. So I have a political beliefs. That's not my identity. I could disagree with someone politically, but still have a very good relationship with them. And we just disagree politically, right? I think what you've seen today is there's a lot more marrying of identity to politics. And once that happens, there is no discourse. Because if someone identifies a conservative or a liberal, and they get to a point where something that they believe is wrong, well, then they're wrong. It's not like their idea was wrong. They, as a person, their identity yeah. is wrong. And once it happens, like people dig in, man. And like, it's a lot harder to have this type of conversation. So I don't know how that happened, like where it became an identity piece. Yeah. But I think that's, a, that's one of the problems. And then misinformation is everywhere, man. Like it's just yeah. flying left and right. I just don't think we have good anchors. Like the reason you and I have talked about this, but there's certain principles I have when it comes to logic and information that keeps me centered when, there's, when you're kind of surrounded by misinformation. And I just, a lot of it's logic and philosophy that I learned. And I just don't think we teach that anymore. And so I think a lot of people don't have that centralized anchor by which to compare things. And so they just, you know, because I always like the Russia gate shit on Facebook, right? I'm like, dude, who believes any fucking ad they see on Facebook anyhow? Like, it just blows my mind that people wouldn't even believe that shit. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I, it just, but then I'm like, I watch my grandmother or my mom, like click on something. I'm like, yeah. I'm explaining it to them. I'm like, guys, like, why did you even click on that? What the hell are, what are you doing? So I get like the older generations might've been swayed, oh, but, yeah. but the question is in that regard, like, do we keep blaming misinformation? We blame ourselves for being that stupid for, like, for it. Like, why aren't we more educated that we don't fall for that shit? I guess for me being as independent minded and independent driven as I am, I put more onus on myself than I do on anybody else influencing on me. Yeah. I don't like giving power to other people. It goes back to something I learned in college classes and one of my interpersonal communications. And it was that, you know, no one ever exerts power. Over you. you only give power to people, period. And we tend to, in a society, in the sake of not feeling bad about ourselves, give a lot of power to other people instead of owning it and having all the power ourselves. You think people- By the way, yeah. this is not going the direction. I thought we were going to go a totally different direction on this podcast. Which direction did you think we were going to go in? I'm curious. I thought, I thought we were going to go more hardcore politics or i thought we'd go covid related because you know my stance on covid but um i like this conversation i think you are right like i you were never not my friend it was a bad <laughs> moment if you want to be honest like the reason i reacted the way i did you is because i'm closer with you and you mean more to me i was more personally offended by, by what had happened than anything mm-hmm. but we've already talked about that what we're talking right now is the core of it right like we're talking about the actual root and this is what yeah. we don't want to talk about as society. Yeah. And we just keep dealing with symptoms. And that's the problem. Because no, we're not talking about the soul, the spiritual part. And that's something that I really try to get to. 
especially on this podcast, but also in random conversations that I have with people, especially if I don't necessarily agree with them, is getting to that core, getting to that root cause. Because at the end of the day, I would argue that a root cause transcends ideology. It transcends your personal beliefs. The cause is the cause. The disagreement will come with how you deal with it. That was definitely, I don't know, I wasn't necessarily trying to veer us in this direction in this particular conversation and just sort of wound up going this way. But I think it's a much more productive conversation. I also didn't really have the energy to argue with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because you, you know a lot about personal history. So yeah. coming out of a, a relationship with someone who's suffering from borderline personality disorder, I got to learn very closely about that disorder, gaslighting, like all because I've been gaslit for four years, like pretty hardcore. So I know it very well. And I, the way my mind works is the only way for me to heal from something is I have to understand it. One of the things about borderlines that I didn't understand it, I have a hard time getting my head around is, and my therapist would say is that they don't have a core. Right. So there is no core self. So they basically adopt the self of whoever they're around, right? Yeah. And it's a foreign concept to me because there's core values inside of me. Again, like it doesn't matter the topic. It all gets measured against those values of like free speech is like probably my number one thing that I believe. But you're right. I don't know if those values exist in other people. And if you don't have those, it's you're kind of just sailing along for the wind, right? Like you don't have an anchor at that point. There's no anchor that's keeping you rooted. I also wonder how much COVID is playing into this because lockdowns obviously for a mental health perspective are not good. So yeah. I, I really wonder what impact that's having on everyone. I don't know. I don't know how I got this crazy. I really don't. It's I don't crazy. think you, you got crazy. No, not me. I mean us, like the country. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. There was a, a podcast I was listening to, I guess, two weeks ago. And they asked a very interesting question. They were just like, what was it about Trump that broke the media but also broke us. I mean, for all my disengagement, unengagement, I was just not paying attention to anything. I don't ever remember the media being as as in as much of an uproar as it was on a daily basis as when Trump was president. And I don't remember people being as in heightened as of a state as they were when Trump was president. So I don't know what happened. Like I'm sure again, it's all connected. It probably goes back to social media, the internet, having more information at hand, people just becoming obsessed for whatever reason. But that for whatever reason is a big part of it. I know exactly what it was. This is the part that people don't understand why Trump was so popular. It has nothing to do with like, dude, he's a, he's a fucking jackass. Like the shit he yeah. said, I would literally be there and be like, why the fuck would you say something like that? Like, it wasn't really about that. Name another president before him that hadn't been their whole life in politics. Like the only one I can think of is, is maybe Reagan, but Reagan was a governor before he went into president. Trump truly was not politics at all. It came out of nowhere, right? So you can't understand it if you think of the dynamic of Republican Democrat, because I don't believe in that. It's one party, right? I know this term's been played out, but establishment versus non-establishment, right? And there is an establishment in the government. And I think when Trump came in, he was a populist. He definitely came in on a populist movement. And I think it scared the shit out of the whole establishment. And that establishment is not just politicians. It is journalists, not in a way of like, they're all in some cahoots making money off something, but DC as a city is a bubble. So journalists who live in DC and report in DC live in a different world. That's what they're embroiled in, right? They're part of that establishment. So this guy came in out of nowhere and I think it scared people because I think they thought they had control over us. If anything, 2016 taught us that we still did have control because obviously no one in the establishment wanted Trump to win. Like obviously the powers that be didn't yeah. want Trump to win, yeah. but he still did, which meant that we still did have a voice. We still could do whatever we wanted in terms of like electing someone in. They weren't hand selected. And I think that was a big opportunity that we missed and we immediately went to fighting each other. Instead of realizing like, imagine how different it'd be today if at that moment we said, okay, we still have the power. 
Now let's collectively go find someone who's a better fit for all of us, right. who's not in politics, vote him or her in. Right. You know what I mean? Like that would have been so different yeah. than where we're at now, where we have weekend at Bernie's in the, in the White House and everyone hates each other. And like, it's just a whole, you're looking like you don't understand the weekend at Bernie's reference. No, no, no. Fuck you. I do. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, I was going to ask you if you thought we needed not more of Trump as Trump, but just more of somebody like him that better represents all of us. Because I would say that the reason why Trump was such a turnoff and why he was so easily able to divide the country is because of half the rhetoric that he was spitting like you asked me yourself like well what policies of his don't you like I was like it's not even about policy that I dislike him it's because of how he talks like during COVID he decided to just stop federal funding to New York because he just didn't like New York because it was a blue state that didn't vote for him and it's it's Democrats and they're radical and they don't deserve federal funding and fuck them like that's a big part of it. It's like when you spew that kind of rhetoric, it's divisive. And it's why would I ever support it? Why would I ever try and reach across the aisle to the other side to people who support him when he is clearly already somebody who doesn't support me, but also is sort of uh, encouraging his own supporters to not support me just because I live in a certain state. It's ridiculous. But um, I mean, just to give you a different, different side of that, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a taxpaying citizen in New York uh, City. Yeah. When I was surrounded in a riot, having my car windows beat on, there were cops watching me. They did nothing. That Why did I deserve that? By the president. It's different. That's not what I'm saying. So he, cut federal, mm-hmm. he cut federal funds because they weren't policing. Like they weren't stopping all the burning and the rioting and stuff like that. And so it's not about COVID per se. Like I hear what you're saying. I would also say mm-hmm. as far as the beginning of COVID, I think Trump delivered everything that Cuomo asked for in New York and that we just didn't end up using the ventilators or the hospital boat or all those things. And again, not defending Trump, but I think I, I found a lot of people blaming Trump for everything. And- it's not about blaming Trump. It's about the energy that he put out there and the narratives that he put out there were very one-sided. You want to talk about uniting the country. That's not the way to do it. You want to talk about reaching every citizen. That's not the way to do it. Just because I'm not a Republican, I don't count. That's what he made it seem like, regardless of whether or not he cut that funding because of the riots, he cut the funding to actual COVID relief during COVID so, because of the riots. So this is what mm-hmm. this is what I will give you on all. Uh, this is my one little political dig I will say. Okay. So if you read the exit surveys coming out of this election, mm-hmm. Democrats are in a lot of problems. They have a lot of problems right now. So the reason Trump got as many votes he did, the consensus was always that he got a lot of like Republicans who would typically sit at home to come. You got big influx, a lot of excitement Republican. Actually, not what happened. He had a lot of turn from the Democrat Party. So the split wasn't Democrat-Republican. It was working class versus elite. Right. That's where the party lines fell. And so what's happening to Democrats right now is that they're losing the working people. Well, and, and that has traditionally been their base. But not all huge. I mean, he gained in every demographic except white males. We've talked about this, dude. It's interesting for me, the dynamics that are at play and what's happening. I, I think what's happening is we have a major realignment happening underneath and it really has nothing to do with Democrat Republican anymore. Like that's that's a farce, man. Like I don't believe in those terms anymore, right? So I think there's a huge alignment happening. And I think this goes to the heart of like why Trump was so popular was because I think the working man, or sorry, probably sexist, working people um, were very they felt screwed. They felt exactly what you just described to me from a capitalist. Like what you just said to me about the capitalist piece is what the working people felt too, but they felt it coming oh, yeah. from the government. Right. And all of a sudden they had someone come like, okay, let's be honest here for a second. Can we just be honest? 
Yeah. We passed that $2 trillion COVID bill. Mm-hmm. And how much did that go to Americans? None of it went Not to millionaires or corporations. No, a lot of it went overseas. Because it was a reconciliation bill. Don't act like it's because it was strictly a COVID relief bill. It was passed by reconciliation. That's why. But what I'm asking you is, mm-hmm. in any budget we pass in reconciliation, if we're in that much of a crisis that people are suffering that much, how can we afford to give money over to other countries when we can't even fulfill for our own people? Well, because yeah. it's not the government's money, it's our money. We're literally no, taking from, the money out of our pockets to give it. From what I saw, there were multiple hearings about this where people are allowed, regardless of their party, to stand up and say, I don't want this included in the bill. I would like this price lowered or whatever it was. And they did on multiple things, including minimum wage, which I would argue we definitely need in this country to have that raised. So yeah. I don't know. Why don't you talk to all these people in Congress who were able to stand up and have their voices heard on the Senate floor that didn't talk about it? Or if they did, why didn't you get removed from the bill? I think that bill was how many thousands of pages and they tried to ram it through in five hours and it got held up. There's been a lot of analysis on it. And I, I, your reconciliation is right. It was part of, it was a rider on like the larger spending budget for the year. But my whole point is if we just break all the shit down and really think about what's going on, on one hand, you're saying people are starving in the streets because of this crisis, but you're taking money out of their pocket and sending it overseas. That makes no fucking sense. That was definitely happening long before this crisis. But I think that there's a whole other discussion in terms of what actually happens in Congress and the sort of legislation that they pass and how they pass legislation. Unfortunately, I have about eight minutes until my therapy session. So so I have a suggestion for you. We can either finish this conversation another day or I can ask you my usual closing questions now and you can rush. Let's finish this conversation another day. Dude, I can't wait for a follow-up. I'm going to come up with better questions. (laughs) Wait, do you go to therapy sessions drunk? I'm not drunk now. I've sobered up, (laughs) but I'm still depressed. Don't be depressed, man. It's it's good. It's good seeing your face and talking. You too.